started, I want to welcome the live stream audience tonight to our Wednesday night Bible study. We've been studying the, the book, uh, well, we started way back. We, we were looking at First and Second Samuel, then we went through First Kings, now we're in Second Kings, chapter 13 tonight. And when we finish the Kings, we'll probably move over into Nehemiah and do a study on Nehemiah. It's a fascinating study. I haven't decided yet, though, because I'm thinking possibly that we would save Nehemiah for a Sunday morning teaching and, and do the book of Nehemiah, but uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll just see how the Lord works that. Uh, any other, if you have any other suggestions of books that you'd like to study on Wednesday night, please share. Also, don't, don't hesitate to send to Deb Walker at info at viralbiblefellowship.org, info at viralbiblefellowship.org. If you have questions that you want to ask about the Bible or about how the Bible views things going on in the world today, because periodically on Wednesday night, we'll just take a night and just answer, we'll do a Q&A. We'll, we'll, we'll go through the Bible and let the Bible speak. So I want to come back and do that again. That was a good couple of weeks that we did that, and I thought everybody responded well to it. So we'll, we'll do that again in a, a couple, three months. So just send your stuff, your questions to info at viralbiblefellowship.org, and Deb Walker will be the one to respond, and, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll build a little list of questions, and we'll, we'll get that going. Well, tonight, as we study, uh, this is a really interesting uh, period in history, biblical history, because it seemed like everybody and their brother named their son with a, the name started with a J. I mean, you got Jeroboam, you've got Jehu, you've got Jehoiada, you've got Joash, you've got Jehoshaash, and I mean, the names go on and on. It's like that must have been the popular letter, I guess, in that day. And uh, we're going to continue tonight, and we'll, we'll take a good look at this. So let's, let's begin with prayer. Father, for those who cannot be with us, who might like to be, but they're just not able to get out in the evening, maybe they don't drive at night, maybe they have physical hindrances that keep them from coming out, whatever it might be. Lord, we pray that you'd be with them tonight, wherever they are, in their home, uh, whatever place they find themselves, and that they would sense your, your sweet, loving presence. And that as we go through the Bible tonight, that the Bible would speak to them just as it speaks to us who are here in the room, and it would minister to them and minister to us. Be with those who are sick, those who are going through difficult times, we do know that oftentimes you allow those things to happen to test us. You allow them to happen that you might mature us and grow us. And so, Lord, may that be the case. And we pray that we would learn the things that you're teaching through our trials and setbacks. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, cha chapter 13, 2 Kings, verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah... Ahaziah was the king of Judah. So in the 23rd year of Joash, and we studied Joash last week, right? Now, now a new name, Jehoahaz. Jehoahaz. Now, I wish some of you had the opportunity to stand up here and say all these weird names in the middle of teaching. It, it's, they're tongue twisters. So Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu. Remember Jehu? He was the king uh, of, of uh, the northern kingdom, Israel, who took down Jezebel and all of Ahab's, uh, all, of his all of his compadres that were evil, and God raised him up and used him that way. Well, here, this new guy, Jehoahaz, he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. So this was the beginning, really, of the fulfillment of a promise made to Jehu. Okay, again, who is this guy? This is Jehu's son, this Jehoahaz. So if you want to turn in your Bible quickly to the last or to chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10. Let's look together at verse 30. Jehu was the king, and the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, 
and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. So now we see one of his sons sitting on the throne of Israel. And so this is really a fulfillment. God promised Jehu that his descendants would sit. Now, Jehoahaz did evil in the sight of the Lord. And by the way, while it says here in the text in, in 2 Kings 10.30 that Jehu uh, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, he did until Jehoiada died, and then all of a sudden he started practicing evil as well. He took after Jeroboam. And uh, so there were things that he did that were wrong. And he was, he was in 2 Chronicles, it records that he was uh, brought down because of it, and Israel suffered because of it. Uh, but but jo Joahaz, his son, did evil in the sight of the Lord, and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So now, if we remember, with all the good that Jehu did, uh, his father did, he continued in idolatry, and, and so did, of course, Jeroboam. So he's following in the steps of those before him. It's so important what kind of a legacy we leave for those after us. And you might say, well, I don't have any children. Um, there are people that watch you. Younger people watch you. And you send messages to them all the time. You don't even know it. How you respond, how you speak to them. One of the things about my father-in-law, my wife's dad, we had a little get-together, a little memorial for him. He died several years ago. And so we had a meal together, but we sat around and talked about him and things that we appreciated about him. And even the grandkids were sharing, some of the older grandkids. And one of the things that all of my children said and their, their spouses was how he always, when they came in the room, he always focused on them and he, he would ask them questions about their life. And he listened when they were speaking. Mark, my son, said, it was as if you were, you were the only person in the room with him. That's how much he focused in on what you were saying. And they remember that about him. That stood out to them. You don't know how your, your body language, your words, how you carry yourself affects people. And isn't it interesting that we really don't really appreciate those things about a person until they're gone. We don't pay attention. We don't walk in clarity when they're with us. But then when they're gone, all of a sudden, these things just come into full view. And that's what you want people to remember about you, the things that remind them of the Lord about you, how you led them. How, it's, it's Hebrews, write this down, Hebrews 13, 7. Hebrews 13, 7. It says this, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their conduct. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So there is something in that whether you see yourself as a leader or not, whether you see yourself as someone that others might be looking at or not, does it really matter? They are. And how you carry yourself, how you conduct yourself, how you speak about the Lord, how you encourage them when they're down, how you pray for them when they need prayer, all those things matter. And, and that's exactly what we want to leave for those after us. But well, we're going to see that tonight in a big way with Elisha, who in this chapter, he dies. And we're going to see this play out really marvelously, okay? Now, verse 3, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and He gave them continually into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel. So, because... Uh, Jehu ended up bringing, instilling, and not taking out all the false worship. Now his son, Jehoahaz, is also allowing pagan gods to be worshipped. Actually, what they were doing was 
They kept the high places. They kept certain things of the pagan gods. And they said, now worship the one true God through that. Well, we talked about this last week. You could worship at a high place in the land of Israel as long as there was no temple. But once the temple was established, the high places had to come down. You had to worship God at the temple. Well, the temple's been built for over 200 years, and they're still worshiping at the high places. And the king did nothing to bring reform in that area. And so God's anger is kindled against Israel. That's the northern kingdom, you know. This is during the divided kingdom in the north, Samaria, and upward. That would be the northern kingdom, Israel. Jerusalem and the area surrounding is the southern kingdom of Judah. Judah, Israel. And and, uh, now you've got the Syrians who are coming in from the east, and they are wreaking havoc on the northern kingdom. 2 Kings, turn if you will, 2 Kings chapter 12. We're not having to go very far, but I do want to bring these passages out because they all blend and fit together, you know. They, they kind of, it's like, it's like uh, unlocking a puzzle, you know. 2 Kings chapter 12, verse 17. 2 Kings 12, 17. At that time, Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. That would be the region just east and south of Jerusalem, out in the, really in a valley. But when Haziel set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, this is not Jehoahash, this is a different one, king of Judah, the other one is the king of Israel, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated and his own sacred gifts and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent these to Haziel, king of Syria. Then Haziel went away from Jerusalem. So basically, he's trying to buy off Syria from attacking and he gave up everything from the house of God. He gave up the treasures going all the way back to David and all the plunder that David had brought in and Saul. And he gave it all up, thinking he's so wise, knowing how to diplomatically remove a problem, not realizing what he did was he only bought the king time to go back and spend all the money of the treasury that was given him to make his armies even stronger, and he did come and take them out. It's just sad. Now, let me explain some of the geographic, uh, the geopolitical landscape here because this is all happening in the same region, okay? So let me try to help you here, get a backdrop. So Syria wanted to attack Israel, but they had to keep dealing with the Assyrian Empire. This, that was during the age of the Assyrian Empire. And this kept them in a weakened state. Because every time they would try to move in on Israel, uh, the Assyrians would make another attack, and they had to always focus on Assyria. But there were these, and I'm not saying Syria, I mean Assyria, Assyria, okay? The M- Syria was never an empire. Assyria was, okay? But there were these little brief periods of time where internal problems rose up in the Assyrian empire, And so they would have to turn inward to deal with their internal issues. And when they would do that, Syria would take advantage and pursue Israel. So they had these moments where the Assyrians backed off to deal with their own issues. And then in those moments, they would would advance toward Israel. Uh, This is all, and by the way, all of what I just said is playing out in God's hand, okay? God is our sovereign. That means he, His plan prevails. These, the, the Assyrian Empire, the Syrians, Israel, Judah, they're all just pieces on a chessboard to God. God is in control. And He's using each one against the other. 
you say, why? That's just cruel. Why would God do that? Play with people like they're like chess pieces. Oh no! Everything God's doing has purpose, eternal purpose, and God is trying to grab the attention of Israel, so He brings in the oppressors, so that they'll turn back to Him. See, God's always looking for His name to be great, and in this period of history through the people of Israel and Judah. And so he would, he, would, he would scold them, he would discipline them, he would chastise them, he would judge them. This was common, but all of it has a purpose in the eyes of God. Now, that leads to verse 4. Then Je Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord. Whoa, a change of uh, heart here. Remember now, he's the new king of the northern kingdom, Israel. And all of a sudden, he starts seeking the favor of the Lord. And the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Well, God knew all about that because he's the one that allowed it to happen. You cannot have a sovereign God if God does not have foreknowledge. Does that make sense? He can't be sovereign. He can't be over everything if he doesn't have foreknowledge to know everything. God knows everything. Not only does God know everything, God is everywhere. There's no place that you can hide from God. Just go to Psalm 139 and try to, try to swallow that. No matter where you go, you can go into Sheol, you can go to the depths of the sea, you can go to the highest mountain, you can go into, you'll never get away from God. So God is on this, okay? He's, he's all over it. Now, interestingly, wouldn't it be wonderful if this newly developed prayer life of Jehoaz uh, marked a lasting revival in his life? I want you to look at this now. It says that he, he, he sought the favor of the Lord. So he's praying, and the Lord listened, for he saw oppression of Israel. And so you would think that, okay, now that he's turned to the Lord, he's never going to go back. He does. And before you start looking down upon Jehoahaz, just think of yourself. How in your time of great need, you cried out to God and you changed. You, you came closer to the Lord. And then when things eased up, you started slacking a little bit more. You, you found life to be content and you stopped pursuing. Well, that's the same. We're, we're no different. We, we don't need to point the finger at Jehoahaz. Just look in your own backyard, right? Now, why, but, but this is interesting too. Even though God knows that he's going to turn back against God, God knows it. But in the moment when he turns to the Lord, the Lord responds with compassion and mercy. This is God. This is your God. I, I, I hear people say to me in private counsel from time to time, I've done so many bad things. I don't even, God, I'm the last person God wants to speak to or hear from. In other words, I've blown it too many times. God's done with me. You ever met somebody where you said, hey, why don't you come to church with me? And they say, man, if I walked in there, the walls and the roof would come down. But they really are trying to tell you something. They have a wrong view of God. They think that God can't forgive. They think that in a season, God doesn't respond when we... What does the Scripture say? You will seek Him and find Him when you search for Him with all your heart. When you come with that heart, that attitude, and that's where Jehoahaz finds himself, because the oppression of Syria is so great, He's like crying out, praying to God, and God responded. I love that about our God. He is a God of justice. He is a God of holiness. He is a God of judgment. But He's also a God of mercy and love and compassion. And He never ceases to be a God of mercy, love, and compassion. He might not execute that part of who He is, but it's still Him. He can never leave Him. He, he's... Just an awesome God. Amen. Now, as we look at this scenario that's going to play out here in this, in this chapter, it's going to remind you of what you saw when we studied the book of Judges. 
And it's just interesting. So look at verse 5, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a Savior. Sound familiar? What did God give to the book in the book of Judges 11 times? He gave the people heroes. He would raise up a hero. So He gave them a Savior. And... Uh, so that they, they escaped from the hand of the Syrians. And the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. So the Asherah pole, uh, a form of pagan worship, was there because uh, Jehu never took them down. But the sins, of, the sins of Jeroboam were the fact that they had golden calves. They had created these idols, these, these calves. And they, but they said, but it's God. They, they, didn't, they didn't go to the point of saying, well, we're worshiping a different God. No, it's the same God. It's just that it's in the form of a calf. And, and so both of these sins are in the camp. So here the Lord gives them a Savior. They go back to their homes. They're not oppressed. They're, they're somewhat in relationship with God. But then they turn right around and go right back into their sin. And that was the whole story of, of the book of Judges, right? It's a repeating cycle, a short-lived prosperity because of the superintendence of God caring for His people. And then they would fall back into apostasy and again repeat the cycle. So the same thing's happening here. Now, we don't know for sure who this deliverer is that it speaks of. Uh, I'll give you three plausible answers, but nobody knows. These are just what scholars have come to think. Uh, one of them uh, would be that it's, it's actually Elisha. It's Elisha. Because Elisha was the one behind Israel's victories while he was the prophet. And uh, you might remember some of that. Uh, uh, he, 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 he was able to, to help Joash defeat the Syrians at one point. Uh, and so maybe he was the guy that God used. Another one is the Assyrian king. Not the Syrian, the Assyrian king. His name was Adad Nirari, N-I-R-A-R-I. Adad Nirari, who, whose attack on the Syrians enabled the Israelites to have some relief. Maybe he was the one that he's referring to. A third one would be uh, Jeroboam II, who was able to extend Israel's boundaries back into Syrian territory. Okay, so we don't know. We don't know which person it was. But here's what I do know. Um, God doesn't need a big name or a big character to be a deliverer. God can raise up a nobody and make them the deliverer of Israel. Amen? God uses whoever He chooses. And boy, did He choose some weird ones in the Bible. And they delivered, okay? He took the weird ones. He used weird people. John the Baptist, eating bugs, living on honey. living out, You know, his clothing was just a sack. I mean, this guy's weird, man. Hair everywhere. Just a crazy man. That was God's last prophet. Wow. Makes you wonder, you know, the people that are walking around us that we look at it and kind of like, what is with that person? What is their deal? You don't know. They might be an angel unaware. They might be a messenger from God. Who knows? I mean, God uses some weird folk. Amen. I don't mind being a little weird if God will use me. I'm a lot weird. Okay, anyway, just talk to my wife. But then again, it might have been a no-name, okay? So that's possible, that's possible too. Now, what's crazy is that even though God came to Israel's rescue, once the immediate oppression lifted, they continued in false worship. Now, I say that again to make a stronger point. The same is true in our day. This type of falling away isn't treated as grievous if the person... Uh, still has some kind of a relationship to God. They think they have a relationship. 
It's not like a person who's just walking away from God completely, wants never again to hear His name or be around Christians. That's not the case. For many people who are believers, they've just chosen to worship God in their own way instead of the way He chose. You ever heard a man say, well, the forest is my sanctuary. I worship God when I'm out in the woods. You might go to church on Sunday morning and worship with people, but I'm out in the woods in God's natural sanctuary. God didn't tell you to worship in the woods on Sunday morning. You're creating your own way to worship God. That is a sin. That's a sin. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to show charity. But if you're watching live stream all the time, I didn't say one time or every once in a while, because sometimes things come up and you can't be at church. I get that. But if you have a pattern that you just stay home and watch, because that's how we do church, have you not read in Hebrews where it says, don't forsake assembling together as some are in the habit of doing? What you're doing is creating your own way to worship the one true God. God's not really open to your way. I'm just being honest with you. Now, I'm not being legalistic and religious that if you miss church, then you're out of favor with God. I don't believe that at all. I believe there's some Sundays that you're traveling, other times something's come up and you're doing... I get that. That's not, it's not about religi religiosity. It's not about legalism. But it's about a general attitude and a pattern in your life of obeying the Scripture and worshiping God the way God has prescribed worship. Does that make sense? we got to be careful here. Turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. This is very interesting. I saw this today in my study, and I thought, oh, I'm going to share that. Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 4. Because I thought, okay, let's go back, because the thought came to me. Our God is a jealous God. So let me go back and figure out where that's at, and let me, let me read that. So here's what I did. Okay? You shall not, verse 4, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Now notice what he didn't say there. He didn't say, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of another god. It could be that. But here he said, I just don't want you to make any image. Even if you say you worship me, do not make me into some image. Now, can I hit home again? This might step on some toes, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but I, if the Word is speaking and the conviction of the Spirit is here, you know, and He comes to you, you need to receive it. Okay, so now listen to what I'm saying. There are right reasons to wear a little cross around your neck or on a little charm bracelet, and there are wrong reasons. You need to check your heart. Make sure you're not doing it for the wrong reason. If you've got a cross hanging in your home, you've got a picture of Jesus, whatever. When I was a little boy, I never told my, my mom this, I had, we had a little picture of Jesus. It was that one where he's knocking on the door. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. And one day, my, my brother and I were up in the bedroom. We were about to get it on. And we were getting upset with each other. And I took that little picture and turned it upside down so Jesus couldn't see what we were about to do. That would be the wrong usage of having a picture of Jesus. He's real. He is a person. He lives inside of you. Why do you need a picture of him when it's not even his picture? The cross. Why do you wear a cross? Is it a way to witness that somebody would see the cross and say, oh, you're a Christian? 
Yes, I am. How about you? I guess that could be okay. Or do you wear it because you think that somehow by wearing it, it's going to protect you like an amulet? There are people that wear Christian jewelry for protection. I, I told you this. I mean, you, there's a certain religion that calls themselves Christian, and they'll take and put, you know, a, a plastic little statue of Jesus or a, one of the saints right on their dashboard of their car for protection. I knew a Catholic woman. We were renting her home when we first moved to town here. We were waiting to buy a home, but we didn't want to rush into a buy. We wanted to wait and find the right house. So we just rented for a few months, and she tried to get us to buy the house, but we weren't interested in her house. And she finally knocked on the door one day, and she said, Would you mind if I bury St. somebody? If I bury St. Francis in the ground out front because it'll help sell the house. St. Joseph? Okay. And, you, and bury him upside down. And I said to her, here's what I response. I said, really? Really? And I said, uh, well, it's your yard. It's not my yard. You do whatever you want. I wasn't worried about that bothering me. I'm not subject to St. Francis or St. Joseph. That's no big deal. But that's what I'm saying. People, now, you've, now you are worshiping a false idol. That's idol worship. But even for Christians, if you wear the cross for any purpose of protection, that's idol worship. That's a carved image. That's what he's talking about here. He goes on in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So it's not that... God, now, let me explain jealousy here for God, because... When you hear the word jealousy, you think sin, right? It's a sin. Okay, that's, that's for us, not for God. Listen to this. It's not that God is jealous or envious because someone has something that he wants. I don't have that. I want what he has. I'm jealous. No, God already has everything. That's not the kind of jealousy. Okay? Um. God's jealous because you have things that belong to Him and you're using them for other purposes and you're worshiping them. It's a sin, as God points out in this commandment, to worship or serve anything other than God or to let something else become God to you. Just because you say it's another way to worship the same God doesn't make it right. Good, good intentions earn a failing grade. With God, it's not A, B, C, D, F, it's pass, fail. Worshiping anything is failure in God's eyes. He didn't prescribe that for you to worship. I sang that little song for you guys. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I got that plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Let me just tell you. That does not fly with God. That does not work. We've got to be careful, church. And going back to what I said earlier, we can start playing around where we stop assembling together. And we, we, we say, well, I still worship God. I still believe in God. You're not believing Him the way He ascribed for you to believe Him and worship Him. That's a sin. That's a sin. Now let's go back to our text, verse 7, chapter 13. For there was not left to Jeho Jehoahaz an army of... God had so reduced Israel with the Syrian army. Look at this. Jehoahaz, when he became king, his army look, was not more than 50 horsemen. 50. And 10 chariots. And 10,000 foot soldiers. Now, you say 10,000 is not a bad number. You're going up against armies of 150, 250,000. You got 10,000. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust of, at the threshing. Wow, think about the threshing floor. 
where they would take the kernels of, you know, this, 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 in our, we'll, take, we'll take the kernels of, of corn, okay, and, and, or, or wheat, and you throw it up, and of course, all the chaff blows away in the wind. That's what he's describing Israel as. You're just the chaff. I've allowed the Syrians to reduce you to chaff. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are, not they, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Joash, his son, reigned in his place. The fact that Israel only had 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers tells you just how far their apostasy took them from God and how far God was willing to go to get them to come back. Verse 10, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. So now his son reigns, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Not much better than his dad, right? He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he himself walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So quickly, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, we just get the record of these two kings who serve the northern kingdom. They, they come, they, 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 they do evil, one turns for a season, but then he goes right back. He does it simply to try to alleviate. Isn't that how sin works? So somebody gets caught in adultery, and they repent and come clean. But if they had not been caught, would they have repented? And, and that's what we're talking about here. Because it got so bad, we'll turn to God. But then as soon as things ease up, let's go back to what we were doing. So he continued in the same sins as his father and grandfather. Also, it should be said of uh, Joahash, Joahash, that he, uh, Jehosh, rather, I don't know how you say it, uh, he also brought civil war among the people of God. Uh, look at verse 12. And the rest of the acts of Joahash did he not do... Uh, where am I at? All that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah... Are they not written in the book? So Joash slept with his fathers. I can't find it. There's somewhere in oh, oh, it's further, it's up higher. Uh, what he did was he caused Israel to war against Judah. So he, he really accentuated a civil war. So this guy was not good. Now, let's go to verse 14, and we've come to the place where we study the death of Elisha, the prophet of God. Verse 14, now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. Look at the wording there. So he finally came upon the illness of which he would die. You get the sense that God's behind this? Listen to me now. Elisha was a guy who healed people of sickness because that's what God wanted. There also came a time when sickness came from God because it was time for Elisha to go to heaven. Let me tell you what that does for me theologically. It gives me a different perspective on sickness. Sickness is never the issue. The issue is God's plan for your life. There is a time to live, Ecclesiastes says, and there's a time to... And the Lord knows what that time is. Psalm 139, verse 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So... You might have a ministry your whole life where God uses you to minister to people who are sick and they get well. 
you care for them, you love on them, you, and God just uses you. And then you come down with a sickness, and it takes your life. And we get all bent out of shape sideways with God. Why God let that person die from that sickness? Hello. God's just being God. He has a time for us to live and a time for us to die. Now, I don't want to die from sickness before it's time. I, I want to fight against sickness as much as I can. I want to pray to God that He would deliver me from sickness. And God does that all through the Bible. But when it's time to go, you're going. And this idea that every Christian who's faithful to God just dies this natural, peaceful sleep death. You fall asleep and you don't wake up the next day. That's hogwash. There are, there are examples of that. But you're not going to tell me that, that Isaac, one of the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Isaac was bedridden for 11 years. He was blind. If he was so special to God, then why did God let him suffer for so long? We don't know why, but I guarantee when we get to heaven, God will tell us why. There were purposes behind it. We, we got to get to the point where we stop focusing on the sickness and we focus on the God behind the sickness and what he's up to in my life and in those around me through the sickness. Does that make sense? That is a healthy way of going through this life, knowing that ultimately everything, big and small, is in God's hand. So let's, let's look further here. So Elisha has fallen asleep, or fallen sick. He's fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die. Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Well, this is the same Joash that worships false gods, but all of a sudden now he's, he's, he's had a moment of clarity, and he comes down to Elisha when he hears that he's dying from sickness, and he says, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. So Joash humbly voiced his great respect for Elisha and his dependence upon Elisha's counsel. All of a sudden, he's about to lose Elisha. Now, all of a sudden, he values Elisha. When, he was, when Elisha was with him, he didn't value. Now, early on he did. There were moments, but he didn't. Where, by the way, Elisha hadn't been spoken of since chapter 9. There's been a lot of time and a lot of things have happened in that period of time. Now, uh, you, you, what does it mean, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen? This is a statement where Jehoash is acknowledging through that little metaphor that it was Elisha through whom the Lord, nobody else, that the Lord worked in behalf of Israel when they turn to God. It's his way of saying, God, you were the man that God used to bring God's plans. He's recognizing it. Isn't it interesting how, again, we don't fully recognize someone's ministry, someone's presence when they're living with us. It's after they're gone, then all of a sudden we realize what we lost just how powerful, how God used them, what a strength of a pillar of strength they were for us. You, you see what I'm saying? And, and I'm not saying that because you should worship somebody when they're still with you. You don't worship anybody but God. But you need to recognize those that God uses. And, and you want to come near them and learn from them and grow from them before the Lord takes them. Because after He takes them, it's over. There, there's nothing left to learn. All you can do is remember back to the things that you knew before. Verse 15, And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have 
made an end of them. So here he's at the end of his life, and God's still speaking through the prophet. And he tells this king who comes to realize just how powerful God is through Elisha, and it was Elisha who delivered God's words, God's message, God's plans. And so now Elisha says, now take an arrow, take a bow, take an arrow, open the window to the east, and fire it. Now, he told him to open the window to the e that's eastward. Why? Because that's the window that opened to the Transjordan uh, region, which was controlled by Syria. All of this has purpose and meaning, okay? The shot symbolized the Lord's deliverance for Israel through the defeat of the Syrian army by Jeho Jehoash. Verse 17, now look at this. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. So Elisha, in that statement, just made it clear to the king that there is a connection between shooting of arrows toward the east and a strike against the Syrians that would bring deliverance to Israel. He, he just stated it. So now the king knows what he just did and why he did it and what it means. But now look at this. This is interesting. So verse 18, and he said, this is Elisha, take the arrows. One arrow, plural, take the arrows, whatever you have left in your quiver. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. In other words, fire all those arrows out into the out of the east, eastward window to the ground. Okay? And he struck three times, and then he stopped. So he fired three more arrows. Okay? Verse 19, Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you have made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. So because Joash didn't fully seize the strategic moment that God, that God brought to him through Elisha, I mean, he, he came into the room with clarity, excited and knowing that this is the man that God used, and we're about to lose him, and this is terrible, and what will we do? And Elisha is actually giving him a, 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 an assignment saying, God's not done when I'm, when I'm not here. Take the arrow, fire it out the window. Take all the arrows and fire them out the window. That is the arrow of victory over Syria. Those are arrows of victory over Syria. And, and if he had kept firing, guaranteed Syria would have been done. But he stopped. He stopped. Maybe he became content thinking, three's enough, I don't need to fire anymore. I've really fired four, so that's, that's plenty. He took his eyes off the focus of what God told him to do. And our focus should be on shooting arrows, folks, that the Lord gives us to, sh to shoot. You say, what, what arrow are you talking about? The gospel. Every day we ought to be looking outward. And we ought to be firing arrows for God. Walking by faith. You can't follow God if you don't have faith, right? But then again, it's not just faith. Faith is action. Right? we got to walk in action. It's not just believing God, that God can do it. It's walking in such a way that God will do it through me. It's like the guy who says to me, well, Pastor Greg, I've been praying now for three months that God would, would bring a, a girl into my life. I want to get married. I've been praying for three whole months. There's not been a girl that's come around me. Well, what are you doing? Well, I'm praying. Well, how about getting off your knees and getting up and start meeting some gals? I mean, you got to do something there. You know, you can't just sit back and expect God to do everything. Faith has action. Just like love is a verb, there's action. Faith is the same. And, and to the degree that we are willing to follow God in action, we will receive the things that God wants us to have. At some point, we're going to come into a property and a, and a building or something, 
and God's going to say, I'm giving this to you. I'm going to bless the church with this. But it's going to require faith for you to take it. And I'm expecting you to walk by faith. I'm expecting you to take some action. It's not back sitting back, you know, twiddling our thumbs with our arms crossed. Well, Lord, where's that property? When you bring that property, we'll take it. No, we have a future facility team that's diligently working, looking at properties and praying and seeking the Lord. We've got elders that pray. We've got a staff that's praying. We've got a finance team that's praying. We're, we're active. We're doing what God would have us do. You do know what it says in Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. Our good work is to carry out the will of God on this earth. And I believe it is God's will that we would have a place to gather that's our own. I believe that. But it's not going to come to us by just sitting back doing nothing. And then once we know where that place is, now all of a sudden we've got more work to do. We've got work to do. We've got work ahead of us. Amen? This is what it means to go the distance with God. Not many in the Bible finished strong. They became content. They relaxed. And when they relaxed, the enemy came and sowed seeds. Or their own flesh rose up and said, you don't have to be that, that much of a Christian. You don't have to get so, so hot and bothered by, by biblical things. You don't have to. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, you're, you're drifting away from the Lord. We've got to stay white hot on fire for God. And when you start to see yourself slipping, you go back to God. Father, help me with this. I, I want to be in your word. I want to grow. I want to tell people about Jesus. So we've got to keep shooting the arrows, folks. Until the day Jesus calls you home, you're supposed to be firing some arrows out the window. Amen? All of us. Every one of us. Nobody's exempt here. Uh, so it was Joash's lack of faith, in a sense. He didn't go the distance with what Elisha told him to do. And Elisha got angry with him and said, Man, what is with you, dude? I just told you to fire arrows, plural. I didn't say stop at three. How many do you have in the quiver? You got, you got seven arrows. You should have fired all seven of them. You got five arrows. Fire all five. And he didn't do it. He let up. You don't let up, church. Like the Israelites, God said, I'm going to give you the land. But what kept the Israelites, the first generation, out of the land for 40 years? Lack of faith. Lack of faith. There are giants in that land. We look like grasshoppers to them. And that kept Israel from inheriting the promised land. And then when they went in the land, the Lord said, I want you to take out every tribe of people that's living here, all the Canaanites, Perizzites, every, every ite that's out there. Take them out. Get them out of the land. This is your land. They took out the first few, and then they rested and said, well, the others, they're not bad. We can turn them into, they can serve on our, on our farms and fields. We'll just use them and tax them, so it'll be a good thing. They didn't go the distance with God. Because they didn't go the distance with God, some of those nations rose up and became a thorn in the flesh to Israel throughout the Old Testament. Three times Israel almost was annihilated, completely wiped off the face of the earth because of three of those people who came from those nations. We, we need to obey God. That's real important that we obey God and go the distance with God. Joshua 1.7 said it this way, only be, he was talking to Joshua. You know, what, what did God say in Joshua chapter 1? First thing he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. So they're sitting on the edge of the, of the, Jordan, or the, the, yeah, the Jordan River, and, and they're about to cross over into the promised land, and then God makes the announcement, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, Joshua, lead. Action. And this is what the Lord said. The seventh verse only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. I love what 
C.H. Spurgeon said. He said, quote, It is a fact that God has purposed all things, both great and little. Neither will anything happen but according to His eternal purpose and decree. It is also a sure and certain fact that oftentimes events hang upon the choice of men. Their will has a singular potency. There is, there is God's superintending and God's will and God's uh, sovereignty, and then there's the responsibility of man to follow God in it. Amen? Verse 20, So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, one of the tribes that they never took out. And as a man was being buried, behold, a, mar a mar marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. So a dead man thrown on the grave of Elisha immediately comes back to life. Uh, this is interesting. This miracle was a sign that God's power continued to work in relationship to Elisha even after his death. What God had promised to Johash through Elisha when he was alive would surely come to pass after the prophet's death. And it did in the defeat of the, of the enemy, in the recovery of the cities that had been taken, and their restoration to the kingdom of Israel. Now, unfortunately, they didn't take out the Syrians completely because they had three major victories, which is the three arrows that he fired, sadly. Verse 22, Now Hazael king of Syria oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. So I love that about God. I just love this, that while He's oppressing them through the Syrians and He's disciplining them and turning them, yet when they would open up a little bit to God, He would come with compassion upon them. He would show them mercy. You're never too far from God that He cannot show you mercy. I love in Micah chapter 7, in verse 18, the prophet Micah, he said, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? God does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. There's never a time when God doesn't delight in steadfast love. No matter how far you've fallen, God delights in steadfast love. If you'll turn to God, He will turn to you. Draw near to God, He will draw near to you. So when Haziel, verse 24, king of Syria died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. And then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the king of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. So the Syrians had taken some of the cities, and now... Uh, the new king of Israel is getting the, the cities back. So three times Jehoash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. There it is. That is the chapter that we just studied that really gives us insight. The fact that God used the Syrians to bring judgment and to draw Israel back to him. The fact that God looked past the sins of the people when they would turn to him and he would respond with love and compassion and raised up a hero for them to deliver them from Syria. The fact that we see Elisha, who God still used after he was gone. God uses, by the way, the Holy Spirit every day in your life. The Holy Spirit's alive in you. Amen? If you're saved, every day he has a work for you. I wonder how many times the Holy Spirit, like Elisha, is getting angry and saying, what in the world are you doing, man? I just told you what to do. What's wrong with you? No, I don't think he gets angry that way. I, I just think he convicts. He, he won't let me rest, you know? It's called a guilty conscience. And God's good at letting my conscience do its job and convict me. And, and I, need to, I need to do the things God calls me to do. Amen? For all of us. Well, let's pray. Father, we do thank you for tonight. We thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for the goodness of God that even in the midst of, of, of discipline, when you are trying to teach us, when you are trying to grow our faith, yet your love abounds. 
and you are willing to forgive us when we sinned. I pray that tonight every person in this room would experience that forgiveness. We would know that we are loved because our Father delights in steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.